Today's uh, scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 through 20. And such were some of you, <clears throat> but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one, with, with, uh, one, becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, uh, a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? <clears throat> you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks, Sang, for reading scripture for us this morning or this afternoon. <clears throat> Good to see everybody here. Um, just to uh, keep in mind also, I know we're watching the news and everything is about the, the ongoing war out there in Croatia, or not Croatia, but Ukraine. Um, it, it looks like it's something that might affect all of us, and so let's continue to pray for, for that incident. Um, it might be somewhat removed from us and very personally, but um, it's, I think, something that we should just uh, continue to pray and keep a pulse on. Um, <clears throat> I think in the next following weeks, you'll be getting more information uh, about you know, the direction of the church with, with regards to the pandemic. I, I think we, we will have a session meeting to discuss what we do with masks, to discuss about uh, the future of ministries in the church and where we can hopefully look forward to beginning to do things in person a lot more. Um, if things go the way they are, uh, you know, it looks like we're, you know, the pandemic's on the down and if that keeps up, you know, we may be able to get back to some normal functioning on a Sunday uh, this week, but stay tuned for more information on that as well, okay? Um, <clears throat> anyways, Today is going to be one of those uh, juicy sermons. I don't know if you, I don't know if you ever read this passage, uh, or I'm sure you just heard it read by saying. <clears throat> and um, it's one of those um, oftentimes uncomfortable things that that Paul talks about freely in in the Bible. And I think uh, it's it's an important thing to to think about here. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. <clears throat> By the way, this is a, a thinking sermon, so you kind of need to open your brain a little bit as I kind of go through this. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and uh, there's this heresy that's been going on in this church, uh, this teaching that says something like to the effect that, you know what, what you do with your body or what you do physically doesn't really matter because what really counts to God is not your body, it's, it's your spirit, right? It's the spirit that matters. And so... The Christian teaching is that, no, it's not just spirit. It's both body and spirit. But there was this teaching in this church that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. 
uh, it's your spirit that counts. And because of that teaching, what happened was there are two divergent approaches, practically speaking, to their life. And so there was hedonism, which said basically, if the body doesn't matter, I'm going to do whatever I want to do with it. Right? I'm going to enjoy whatever I want to do with my body. And the other extreme was asceticism. Well, if the body doesn't matter, it's unimportant. I need to put it under control. I need to, I need to uh, remove myself from physical pleasures of any kind and just focus on the spirit. And so you had these two divergent understandings of this heresy, but the church in Corinth were primarily made up of many hedonists, right? And so in this church, this is, this is kind of crazy. If you didn't know about this, um, Paul's talking to a particular issue uh, in this particular church that said, I could do whatever I want with my body because, you know, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. And so what they were doing, let's say if they go to church on Saturday, which is probably what they did in, in a synagogue, men would on the way to church, uh, engage with local prostitutes. Prostitution was, was, was uh, legal, and uh, there were temple prostitutes uh, all over the place. And so on the way to service, they, they would engage with a prostitute and, and then go worship God. And no one said anything. They didn't think it was a big deal. Because, number one, everybody was doing it. And number two, theologically speaking, they thought it was okay, Right? And Paul then sees that as a problem, right? There's what he calls sexual sin, okay? I'm, I'm going to try to be careful here because I know there's some younger people here, but most of the younger are in day spring. Uh, and so I feel like we're old enough to, to talk about the word sex a little bit. But he said there was a problem in this church. And so he's writing this letter and this part of the, uh, sir, uh, this part of the letter to address that issue, okay? To address that issue, and um, that's what we're going to talk about here. But here's the thing. If you're uncomfortable, I'm not going to talk about sex, all right, the three-letter word, all right, because I don't think this passage is about that. This is the passage that I normally use in premarital counseling. Um, and normally we look at it and we say, oh, this is the sex chapter, right? And as a person of faith or as a person who follows Christ, as a Christian, you have or at least ought to have uh, heard of a certain view of the nature of physical relationships between people. And so you look at this passage, and oftentimes we look at it in premarital counseling, it says, this is what sex is, this is why you, you shouldn't have sex before marriage, and this is why it's important to know this. Here's a fact. Nine out of ten times, the people that I'm talking to already know this. They, they already have heard this somewhere. Okay, if they grew up in church, if they've been around the church, um, you know, if they, if they even read the Bible, they, they already know this, right? They've already heard, right? Sex in marriage only, right? But when I bring it up in the conversation, they become silent, okay? Uh, one out of two times when I talk to you, one out of ten times, one or two out of ten times when I talk about it, sometimes they claim ignorance. Oh, I didn't know that. And then they go silent in the conversation, but here's the thing, whether they already know this or whether they didn't know this, even if they abide by this in their own life, I'd still say probably eight out of ten times, it's not always clear on exactly why Christians say that's the case. Why? Why is it no, you know, no, no physical relationship prior to marriage? 
why is it exactly the case? We just heard it. We just kind of grew up knowing it. We just think it's something special that we should only do with our spouse. But and we don't quite exactly know why that, case, why that is the case. And most of the time, we're just uncomfortable talking about it, right? It's just too uncomfortable talking about it, too personal and too private. Which, to be honest, I find that somewhat hypocritical. Because people talk about it out there all the time, right? Regardless of your views, in social media, in movies, uh, in your music, it's everywhere. We talk about it all the time, in your home, at work, in school, in your relationships, but not the church. No, we can't do that. That's just too uncomfortable. Can't talk to fellow Christians about this. Can't talk to the pastor about this. And so what happens is we never get to talk about it comfortably or critically or even thoughtfully, all in the name of personal privacy and personal choice. But you see this passage here, at least it tells us this. Not only is it an important discussion, Paul seems pretty free about talking about it. In fact, if you look at the whole Bible, the Bible itself is pretty open about talking about sex. Have you ever read the Song of Solomon? Try reading it. You might blush. Can't believe that's in the Bible. Now, look, I know some of you or many of you here are married. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I'm already married. Or uh, I'm married with kids now. And so this stuff doesn't apply to me to me anymore because now I'm married and, you know, we don't really have sex anymore. So, uh, it's, you know, it doesn't apply. Look, before you tune out, uh, you'll be glad to know that this sermon is not going to be about sex per se. That's, that's for a Bible study. At least mostly it's not. Because as I, as I read this passage and as I look deeper into what Paul's saying here, uh, Paul's issue here is not, I think, first about calling people out on a particular sin issue. I think his concern is, is deeper. The, the issue for Paul is a, is a lot deeper. The sex part is an example of that deeper issue that's prevalent in this particular church. Now, the issue here, follow me, the issue here is not first about, you know, sexual immorality. Or the, the, the issue, it's a real issue, right? It's important and it's rampant. But Paul's here, he's not trying to be the sex police, okay? He's not just addressing a particular moral problem in the church because this passage, it's not first a sexual problem. It's deeper. It's more pervasive. It's an identity problem for Paul. It's an identity problem for Paul, right? The way he addresses this one particular issue in this one particular church is by addressing a deeper and broader truth of identity. Do you remember last week, if you listened to the sermon or if you were here last Sunday, um, you, that's what we talked about, isn't it? We began a few weeks talking about sin, the nature of sin, that it tends to be inwardly uh, drawn, that, that the nature of sin tends to be self-motivated and self-interested and all that. And we, we mentioned the fact that because of that nature, now we've grown into an individualism that's prevalent in our culture today. And then we talked about identity, that how people in, in decide what they're about, what their purpose is, what's important to them, the way they do that is individualistically, personally and selfishly. We look inside of ourselves, see what we want, and then we need to achieve it. We need to make that happen. That's what we said. Modern man says, you need to look inside of you for your identity, and whatever that desire is, you need to go out there and make it real or actual. But what we learned last week was this. The Bible says, no. 
real loving, liberating identity, it doesn't begin inside. It comes from outside, is what we see here in the Bible. Because in the Bible, Christian identity is not something you achieve. It's something you receive. It's not something where you go out and you do your best to get your identity. It's something that God says, I bestow upon you. And so we ended last Sunday by saying this, that the question of identity is not just who am I. The question of identity is whose am I? Who do I belong to? What do I belong to? What have I given my life to? That really affects me and makes me who I am today. That gives me purpose and significance today. Okay? Now I want you to look at our passage and you read verse 19. Because here is the crux of this issue. Verse 19, Paul says this to this church about this particular issue. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And this is what he says. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you see how Paul addresses this? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You don't belong to you. You belong to him. You are not your own, he says. You are his. Now, I want you to think about this and think about how radical that statement is for us today. Because any self-involved, self-interested, self-motivated, sometimes just plain selfish, individualistic culture such as ours, that is a radical cultural statement. Because in most of our contemporary society, we say this, you belong to you. You belong to yourself. And you decide everything for you because you are your own. But Paul says something completely antithetical at the end of our passage. Dare I even say countercultural? He says, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You belong to me. That's an identity issue, isn't it? It's an identity issue. And it's not just an identity issue. It's an identity issue that is completely antithetical, sometimes contrary. It runs completely against the current thinking of the Corinthian church. How do I know this? Look at verse 12 here. Paul quotes the church and the people saying this. All things are lawful for me. But then he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, they say. But I will not be dominated by anything, Paul says. He quotes the, in the beginning of our passage what people are saying in the church. All things are lawful. All things are lawful for me. Right? It was what they were saying and throwing around at the time. All things are lawful for me. Twice he repeats that in our passage. But you know what that means in essence? When they say all things are lawful for me, what they're saying basically is this. I can do whatever I want. I decide what I want. As long as I'm not hurting anyone else, I decide. Why? Because I belong to me. That's what they're saying. All things are lawful for me. I belong to me. I decide. That's how Paul starts. But then he ends our passage by saying something completely different. 
You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You don't belong to you. You belong to me. And the question that we have to ask today is this. What does belonging to Jesus, what does belonging to God look like practically? So verse 12, they're saying, everything is lawful for me. Verse 19 and 20, Paul says, no, you don't belong to you. And in the middle of those verses, what is that supposed to look like? He addresses one example in this church, the particular issue of sex. It's an example, a relevant and personal example to this church of what belonging to Jesus, how their identity ought to inform their behavior. Look at this example. What's what we're going to do? We're going to look at this example, and then I'll give you a couple more, okay? At the end of our passage, Paul says, your identity is this. You are not your own. You've been bought at a price. Two verses before this, he basically says, don't have sex outside of marriage. Let me be clear. Christians, not just today, but historically, not just biblically, but theologically, do not believe in any sex outside of marriage. All right, kids? You're old enough. Now, I know the reality, okay? So that's, that's another issue. But that's what it says. And the question you should be asking is why or why not? And here's the reason. Because in Paul's mind, when someone gets married, this is his presupposition of marriage. When you get married, you're not saying to your spouse, I get to have you for the rest of my life. You give yourself to me. No, for Paul, the relationship of marriage says something completely different. When you get married to someone, you're saying to your spouse, I'm giving myself to you. And I'm giving myself to you, not just physically, but it also says I'm giving you myself emotionally, socially, legally, economically, in every way. That in his mind, according to his identity, his understanding of marriage, that's what it is. Now follow me, okay? So if you say to somebody, I will have sex with you, but I will not marry you, what you're really saying is, I want something from you, but I'm not giving you myself. And if that's the case, you're still saying, I want this from you, but I still belong to me. Then for you, sex is just self-fulfillment. It's just self-fulfillment. No matter how consensual it is, you are using this person for you. It's self-fulfillment. It's, it's basically selfish. Now, by God's grace, you know, you get that part out of the way, and, and maybe that could turn into something more, right? That's how we often think about it. Let's get this part of the way, and let's work on the real thing. But that's probably not the best way to start a marriage, because if marriage is about self-giving, it's hard to start that when you start selfish. But if, as Paul says, 
You don't belong to you. You belong to God. You were bought at a price. You belong to Jesus because he is someone who has completely given himself to you. Body, spirit, blood, in every way. Then that identity ought to completely reverse your view. Not just about marriage, but also about this issue of sex. Because now, sex isn't just sex. But you only want to have sex with someone whom you've completely given yourself to in body, in blood, in spirit. Just like Christ has for you. It's a life commitment. Culturally speaking, people say, you belong to you. Sex is about self-fulfillment. Counterculturally speaking, you don't belong to you, you belong to God. Sex is complete self-giving. And the only human relationship where you have this kind of self-giving, this kind of commitment, not just body, but in spirit and in every way, the only human relationship we know is called marriage. So you see this? Paul's telling this church, and he's telling us, identity makes a difference. Identity does make a difference. Who are you? Whose are you? It makes it. It ought to make a difference. And if you're a person of faith, if you're united to Christ by faith, why would I go around uniting myself physically to anybody without the life-committing intent of being united to them spiritually in every other way? Paul says, that is not who you are. You don't belong to you. You belong to me. Now, let's expand this idea because basically now you have two different worldviews that oppose each other. The one worldview says, you belong to you. The other worldview says, no, you don't belong to you, you belong to God. Let's compare these two a little bit. Let's look at them more carefully and, and see, because I think this is rampant in our thinking today, whether we believe this or not. Uh, you belong to you. That thinking just doesn't work. Whether you're a Christian or not, in some ways, I think we, re we relate with that truth. I mean, we can say, I don't care what people say, it's my body. I belong to me. I can do whatever I want with it, with whoever I want. Really? You know, uh, I think it's been really like 25 years or so since I've been in ministry. But I remember my first year or two of seminary, I was a youth group pastor in a small church, maybe 20 kids, 30 kids at the most. And uh, it was like family, you know, it, it was foundational to my growing as a, as a pastor. I wasn't a pastor, I was, a, I was um, an intern, but, um, you know, I loved the kids, and I enjoyed youth group ministry until one day, uh, I had a young girl in my group, and probably at the time, around 15, maybe 16 years old, her, you know, her parents were elders in the Korean church, and, and uh, she had a lot going on in her life. She you know, was in a lot of trouble all the time. And, and she, was just, she was just a mess. And she, she came up to me finally, and she wanted to talk. And I'm a first-year seminary student. You know, I don't really know about everything about everything. I still don't. But she comes up to me, and she says, you know, Francis Jondo, basically, that's what they call him, uh, called me. I hate my life, and I want to commit suicide. Look, if you're going to go into youth ministry and someone tells you that, that's the last thing you want to hear, right? In my heart, I was shocked. I was like, what? 
And I said, why? And she said, my life is just messed up. Nobody cares about me. My family doesn't care. My friends don't care. I, I, I just, I just, this is what I feel like. I want to do it, and I don't know what else to do. So it, it, I thought about it, and, I, and this is what I said. You can't do that. You can't do that. And, and she responded to me this way. She goes, why not? No one cares. And it's my life anyway. And I can do whatever I want with it. And I think about that statement. And what she's saying is what here, they were saying here. I belong to me. I have the right to do what I want. And I'm not hurting anyone else. I'm just hurting me. Now think about this. Really? Is that really true? What about all the people that care about you? If you do this, what about all your, the people that love you? What about your parents, your family, your, your siblings, your friends? Do you know how much suffering and how much pain you're going to cause because you do this? They are going to be devastated. You know, you, I know you feel like your life is, is messed up, but do you know how messed up people around you are going to be if you do this? Their life will completely change. They will never enjoy life the same again, okay? There's always going to be a darkness inside their hearts that's irreparable. Mentally, emotionally, psychology, or psychologically. Do you have the right to do that to them? Now, it's true, of course, to a degree. It's true. We do belong to us in a sense, right? We, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. We have to take responsibility for our actions and our health, even our thoughts. But the idea that you just belong to you is, is naive. It's too simplistic because whether people think so or not, we are unavoidably connected. There's familial, there's relational, there's even communal and societal responsibilities, and we're all interconnected and we're all affected. So it's too simplistic to just say, well, I belong to me and it doesn't matter about anybody else. It doesn't work in our society. But let's look at the other worldview that says, you don't belong to you. You belong to him. Now, when I tell people, and as I look at 1 Corinthians 6, and I tell people, you can't have sex before marriage. You know, I say this to people, not just non-Christians, but, but even some Christians, and when I say it, they all look at me like, what planet are you from, right? What era of history were you born? Because nobody thinks like that anymore, right? Nobody talks like that. Nobody does that. And, and they look at me like I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm some kind of alien, outdated, old, decrepit alien. But, you know, that's okay. I'm okay with that because, for me, it's not just a cultural issue or a social issue. It's an identity issue. And it's an identity that in whatever context, culturally or socially or otherwise, in one way or another, if that identity is real, it will always in some sense be different from where I'm living. It's countercultural. Look, this, this is the problem I have today, even with some of us. If I say sex only in marriage, right, or no divorce, marriage, Till death do you part, immediately people say, oh, so you're conservative. You're traditional. Which to me sounds like a backward hand slap that kind of says, you're outdated. You're not woke enough. 
okay? Uh, you're, you're old school. Um, that's what it sounds like. But what they really mean when they call me conservative or traditional is this. It means they're saying this. We live in a contemporary liberal society that says independence, expressive individualism, where you decide much of you want, that's the kind of place we live. But out there in the world, like third world countries, non-Western societies, where it's not individualism, it's the family. It's the community. It's, it's the society that determines where you are and who you belong to. It's traditional family values that rule. They're conservative. They're traditional. So follow me. In a traditional culture, all right, conservative culture, that what the people say, it's your family that tells you what you have to do. It's your society, it's your community that says this is where you have to be. So don't commit suicide. Why? Think of your family. Don't have sex before marriage. Why? Because our family value says this is what marriage is and this is what sex is. And they were handed down to you, those ideas. Contemporary liberal Western society says you belong to you. Traditional conservative society says you belong to your family, your community, your society. So if I say no sex before marriage, ah, you must be traditional. You must be conservative. And this is the problem today. This is why people confuse conservative politics with Christianity. This is why some of you confuse Korean family values with being Christian. But if you look at Paul, he's speaking of an identity that is neither contemporary nor traditional. Neither liberal or conservative, but just different from both. Here, let me give you another example. Let's talk about money. If you come from a conservative, traditional, family-based society where you say, you know, I belong to my family, then your money is not yours. It belongs, in a sense, to your family. You can't just do whatever you want with it. You can't work wherever you want to work. You have a responsibility to help your family, to, commit, or to contribute to society. And so your family decides, your community decides. In Western society, identity, you are you. You belong to you. So that says your money is yours. You can do whatever you want with it. But Christian identity, Christian identity, Christian faith, your money is God's. Your money is God's. How does he want you to do with it? And the answer to that question can be totally different from both liberal and contemporary views as well as traditional and conservative views. You have basically here not two, but three radically different ways to approach economics. Do you see? For the Apostle Paul, identity makes a difference. And it's not conservatism or liberalism that guides his life. You belong to you. Nor is it contemporary or traditional views of life. You belong to your family or society. It's fundamentally different to both. It's his identity in Christ. You belong to him. You belong to him. And when you do this, sometimes people look at you and to your liberal friends, you look conservative. But sometimes to your conservative friends, you look liberal. But deep down, Christian identity is neither. It's countercultural to wherever your circumstance might be. For example, 
Look, if you live in a patriarchal society, conservative patriarchal society, the fact that you belong to God, the fact that he says in Christ there is neither male nor, nor female, slave or free, we are all one, will liberate you. But if you live in a liberal society, the fact that you belong to God sometimes makes you look conservative. But the fact here is for Paul, you do not belong to you. You do not belong ultimately to your family or society or community. You belong to him. And that identity is deeper than your family identity. It's important identity, family identity, but it's deeper. This identity is deeper than your gender. This identity is deeper than your race. This identity will always, in some way, whether it be sex or money or power, it will be deeper and it will be different than from how your current surrounding and culture sees them or views them. That's what Christian identity does. I mean, how can it be otherwise? Paul says in our passage, you were bought at a price. And that price is nothing less than the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who didn't even make sense to his own contemporaries, his own society, his own disciples. They couldn't peg him one way or another. Are you a conservative, Jesus? Or, you know, you keep the Sabbath. Why are you working? Right? No, no. Are you a liberal, Jesus? What are you doing talking to those women? They, they, just, couldn't, they just couldn't figure it out. And you look at the cross, there's a king. They got that. But why is he like a servant, you know, a servant dying? There's this master. He says he's the master. People call him master. But why does, he, why does he live like a slave? He's called a lion. But at the same time, he's a lamb. He was rich in God's sight, but he became poor. He was God, but he looks like one of us. He was strong, but he died in weakness, and he was rejected. And he did that so that poor could be rich, so that weak could be stronger, so that there's hope for hopeless in a world that doesn't have hope, so that there might be love and acceptance for those that feel unloved or rejected in the culture that they live in, to give comfort for those that are hurt, to give dignity and respect for those belittled or undermined by the rest of the world. Christian identity, as hard as it can be sometimes, will always be in some way countercultural to where you live. And as a person of faith, if you have never experienced that in any kind of way out there in the world, then maybe you have identity issues. So let me end with this. What do I do then? How do I know what to do if I'm going to claim this identity for myself? I belong not to me, but to God. How do I do? And here's just two things. One, always remind yourself of that identity. By asking yourself the question, not just who am I, but who do I belong to? Whose are you? Confess that to yourself again. Verse 20, you were bought with a price. You belong to him. You are not your own. Remind yourself that. But the second thing is, right, if you know this, what does Paul tell us in the end of verse 20? You were bought with a price, so glorify God. So glorify God in your body. If you know this identity, that you are not your own, but you belong to him, then glorify God. And what does that mean? It means this, that you ask yourself the question, 
Not what does my culture say, not what does my inner desire say, but what God do you say? What does your word say that I should do, not just with my body, but with my hands and my feet, my words, my thoughts, my actions, my feelings? How do I let others know that I belong to you? How do I let others know that I've been forgiven, that I've been saved by grace alone, that I've been loved unconditionally, that I've received an identity that I did not achieve, but I received by grace alone and forgiven and loved unconditionally? How do I let others know that I belong to you? That's where we start. So I challenge you to think about this um, as we move forward now. Next week we'll be beginning a new series on the church. But this actually leads into the church. Because now we ask ourselves as a community, not just who am I, but who are we? Whose are we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, your patience, um, your long-suffering. You know there are people here that just come and everything just goes to one ear and out the other. And we go back to our lives doing and living and being and whatever it is we feel we see or want. And you know there are some of us who are just hearing these things and we try to apply them, but easily get swept away Monday through Friday by the things that we are dealing with every day. And there may be a few of us, God, that, that generally try and do this every day. Out of all the important responsibilities, out of all the identities we have, the roles we have, Lord, we struggle to uh, remind ourselves of something that ought to be even greater than that. And that greater identity ought to trickle down into everything else. So as simple as that sounds, Lord, uh, we, we need your grace. Uh, we need your mercy and patience. We need your wisdom. Uh, we need to grow uh, in our understanding of our identity. We need strength and courage to be able to live in such a way that not only goes against the grain of some of the things that are happening in our culture, but also the strength to say, how do I show others who I really belong to? And so, Lord, uh, capture not just our thinking, but our hearts, and give us the desire to confess you once more. Forgive us for making you less than what you ought to be in our lives. And build in our hearts and our lives the presence of God that only you can give. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.